Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 209 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Mission Training. The training reflects the era. Unsure of how the human body would respond to spaceflight, the Mercury astronauts were trained for every possibility. As more flights provided knowledge, the astronauts found they did not need such simulators as this disorientation-producing Mastiff. The astronaut training program now follows this schedule. On arrival, all astronauts, pilots, and scientists receive intensive academic training to assure that they have achieved a common level of spaceflight knowledge. Classroom courses include such diverse subjects as celestial mechanics, rocket propulsion, space fix, space medicine, and geology. Classroom work is supplemented with field trips. The astronauts collecting samples on the surface of the moon will have the equivalent study of a master's degree in geology. All astronauts are proficient helicopter pilots since the landing on the moon will be in a vertical landing and takeoff vehicle using rockets instead of rotor blades. The general training of the astronaut also includes instruction on survival in the desert and in the jungle since a spacecraft could land in these terrains in case of emergency. Water survival techniques are taught since the spacecraft normally lands at sea. In the giant centrifuge or flight accelerator, they experience the high gravity sensations they will feel during their ride on a big booster and during re-entry. But what happens to an astronaut once he is named to a flight crew? Training for the specific mission follows much the same pattern as general training, but now Classroom work is pointed at the goals of the mission and the hardware and techniques the astronauts must use to accomplish these goals. In the complex computer-operated electronic mechanism called the Command Module Simulator, the astronauts learn, singly and as a team, systems and characteristics of their three-man ship. Similarly, the Lunar Module Simulator is used to train flight crews in the operation of the two-man lunar landing vehicle. 
Crew training for Apollo 11 was already complicated by the need to master the controls of two different and very complex spacecraft, as well as the space suit. But now the mission took on new dimensions, principally in learning how to set a 14.5 metric ton lunar module safely down on the moon. The astronauts practiced this task on fixed-based lunar module simulators in Houston and the Cape. Furthermore, they practiced with a swinging suspension device at Langley Research Center and a free-flight apparatus called a Lunar Landing Training Vehicle at Ellington Air Force Base, Texas. We will begin with the Lunar Module Simulator. The trip from 50,000 feet down to the moon's surface would be, in essence, a long, controlled fall from orbit, a trajectory governed by the same exacting laws of motion as orbit itself. It was called the powered descent. It would begin with the lunar module flying horizontally over the moon at a speed of just under 3,800 miles per hour and would end with a gentle touchdown on the moon's surface. There were two keys to the powered descent. One was an engineering marvel, the world's first rocket engine with a throttle. With it, the lunar module could descend at a whole range of speeds. If necessary, it could even hover in the sky like a helicopter. The second was the lunar module's onboard computer. More than half the lander's weight was fuel for the descent rocket, but the fuel budget was so tight that there would have been little chance of making it to the surface without computer control. The computer experts at MIT programmed it to govern the entire descent. It would compute the precise amount of thrust needed from the descent engine at any given moment. It would keep track of the lunar module's distance to the designated landing site. It would share control of the spacecraft with the pilot or, if needed, give up control altogether. In their simulations of powered descent, Armstrong and Aldrin began where Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan left off, nine miles above the moon. With the lander tipped back horizontal, they would light the descent engine and throttle up to full power, using its thrust to break their orbital speed. Obeying Kipler's law, the lander would fall moonward as it slowed. In this early phase, the craft was oriented with the windows facing the moon. This allowed Armstrong to observe landmarks passing underneath and use them to judge whether he and Aldrin were on the proper trajectory. Then, some four and a half minutes into the descent, the craft would rotate until it was windows up, allowing the lunar module radar to bounce echoes off the surface to determine altitude. At about six minutes, the computer would throttle the engine down to 55% thrust and the long break continued. Throughout this period, if everything went well, Armstrong and Aldrin wouldn't have to do anything but watch the gauges. Finally, 
eight and a half minutes after engine ignition, the final phase of the power descent began. Some 7,500 feet above the moon, the computer would pitch the lander forward until it was nearly upright. This was called the pitchover maneuver, so that its engines would not only break the craft's forward speed, but keep it from falling too fast. From then on, the lander followed a slanting path to the surface like a car braking on a long, straight mountain road, with the computer carefully riding the throttle like a motorist foot on the brake. With only four minutes from pitchover to touchdown, things happened very fast. There wasn't time to read checklists. They had to have the entire flight plan memorized. Pilots sometimes talk about being ahead of the airplane, a state of mind that enables you to think one step ahead of your craft, the better to cope with emergencies. But that was nearly impossible in a lunar module descending to the moon. For Armstrong, pitchover was the moment when the piloting part of the landing began. With the cratered plains of the Sea of Tranquility spread before him, he would have to scan the advancing moonscape looking for familiar landmarks he had memorized from photos. And, by using a special grid called the Landing Point Designator, he could see for the first time where the computer was aiming to land. The landing point designator grid was marked off in degrees on the lunar module's double-pane window and was used like a gun sight. By sighting along the grid at the proper angle, which was supplied by the computer, Armstrong was able to spot the landing point. If he didn't like what he saw, he could tell the computer to change its aim by nudging the lunar module's attitude control with his right hand. A nudge to the left or right shifted the aim point accordingly, tilting the controller backward or forward, move the landing spot up or down range. While this was going on, Aldrin would interrogate the computer, asking it for the lunar module's height and speed and comparing the result with the data from the radar. Then, he would relay this information to Armstrong. Aldrin knew very well that his title of Lunar Module Pilot was a misnomer because all the flying during the landing, and there might not be much of it, belonged to Armstrong. In theory, Armstrong knew he could let the computer fly the Lunar Module all the way to touchdown without touching the controls. In reality, he wasn't about to do that. It wasn't just that as a self-respecting test pilot he wanted to be at the controls at the moment of landing. It was because the computer was blind. It might bring him and Aldrin down on an absolutely perfect trajectory right into a crater or a boulder field. Armstrong planned to take over from the computer when he was about 500 feet above the moon. Even then, Armstrong would let the computer do most of the work. Flying the lunar module entirely by hand was so difficult that he wanted to avoid it at all costs, and unless the computer went out, he wouldn't have to. Instead, 
he would maneuver the lunar module by tilting it slightly to one side and let the computer continue to ride the throttle. Armstrong knew there was always the possibility that something would go wrong, from a communications failure to a malfunction of the descent rocket. And this would force him to abort the landing. In that case, he could press the button marked Abort Stage, setting off a dramatic chain of events. In an instant, pyrotechnic bolts would sever the connections between the descent and ascent stages. At the same moment, the ascent rocket would blast into life, boosting Armstrong and Aldrin back toward orbit. But an abort, especially one at low altitude, carried its own risk. If the ascent stage engine didn't light, there would be no time to find out why and do something about it. Armstrong and Aldrin would crash in a matter of seconds. Even if it did fire, the ascent stage might not separate cleanly from the descent stage. And, even if there were no malfunctions, there was the problem of finding Collins. With the timing for the rendezvous now completely disrupted, Armstrong and Aldrin would face a long and complicated journey back to the command module, and it would have been several hours since Aldrin had aligned the lunar module's guidance system with the stars. An abort would force the men to fly with a guidance system that could be significantly in error. So, the last thing Armstrong wanted to do was abort. Not only because it would mean failure, but because it could be even more risky than the landing itself. As the lunar module got very close to the moon, Armstrong and Aldrin would enter the most hazardous portion of the descent. Somewhere in the last 200 feet, they would be too low to abort successfully. If the descent engine quit, the lunar module would be going too fast for the ascent engine to arrest the lander's plunge and start the ascent stage upward again. The astronauts, borrowing a term from helicopter pilots, called this part of the descent the dead man's curve. Even if nothing went wrong, Armstrong would have his hands full. Already, he would have to find a safe landing spot free of large craters and boulders. By the time the lunar module was 100 feet up, Armstrong would have to arrest nearly all of the craft's forward motion and begin a slow, careful, vertical descent. The computer would still control the throttle, but Armstrong would be able to make small adjustments by using a special toggle switch. By clicking the switch up or down, he could increase or decrease his rate of descent by one foot per second. Repeating this as many times as necessary, to get the change he wanted. It seemed to Armstrong to be a strange way to control a craft, and he was skeptical that the switch would prove effective in the actual landing, but he would have to wait and see until he was 100 feet above the moon. In these final moments, Armstrong's gaze would be directed almost entirely at the moon, and he would rely on Aldrin's steady reports on altitude horizontal speed, and descent rate. The first part of the lunar module to touch down to the moon would be the three long metal probes attached to the foot pads. 
At that moment, a blue light labeled Lunar Contact would glow on the instrument panel. Aldrin would be watching for the contact light, ready to call it out. At that moment, Armstrong would shut down the engine and the lunar module would fall the remaining three feet to the surface. Perhaps the toughest thing about landing on the moon was there was no such thing as a second chance. Armstrong and Aldrin would have to stay on top of any problems that might come up, even as the computer brought them closer to the moon. For the first few weeks of training, the instructors went easy on Armstrong and Aldrin. In one practice, landing after another, the two pilots worked out the teamwork they would need to handle the descent. By the time Apollo 10's crew came back from the moon, Armstrong and Aldrin were landing confidently and smoothly. And then, the instructors decided the honeymoon was over, and they were nothing short of diabolical in their efforts to push their students to the limit. Now, there was a Gemini 8-type event every day. But Armstrong was unflappable. The instructors would freeze the pointing mechanism for the descent rocket so that the nozzle could no longer be aimed from side to side, and Armstrong would compensate by tilting the entire lunar module when he wanted to change direction. They would make a maneuvering rocket stick in the on position when he was in his final hovering descent, and Armstrong would cant the lunar module against the unwanted thrust as if he were leaning an airplane into a crosswind. Every so often, in their effort to reach new levels of ruthlessness, the instructors threw in a set of emergencies so complex, so difficult, that no one could have handled them. With other astronauts, this usually brought words of protest from the cockpit. But no matter what they did to Armstrong, the instructors never heard an angry word from the simulator. Instead, they'd find out only in the discussion afterwards, sitting around the console with Armstrong's clear, pale face, which would turn red, and his usually restrained voice would crack and the instructors would know they had pushed too far this time. Minutes later, Armstrong would be back at the controls taking another try, and he never ended a session without making it down successfully. By the end of May 1969, the simulator at the Cape was linked via radio to the Mission Control Center in Houston, these so-called integrated simulations were designed to test not only the astronauts, but the flight controllers as well. Integrated simulations were considered essential, and for good reason. Spaceflight is not a solo venture. It is a partnership between the astronaut and the mission control. And nothing demonstrated this more than landing on the moon. For dozens of the flight controllers who worked for Chris Craft, the first lunar landing was a coveted goal, just as it was for the astronauts. The flight director, who would be in charge during the landing, was Eugene F. Krantz, a former Air Force fighter pilot who had flown F-86s in Korea. With rugged features and a light blonde crew cut, 
Krantz had the look of a drill sergeant. But inside, Krantz was as sentimental as they come. Like most people at NASA, he was an unabashed patriot who could get misty-eyed when he heard the Star-Spangled Banner. At the start of the work day, Krantz would go into his office and listen to John Philip Sousa marches to get his blood flowing. He was a devout Catholic and a man of strong beliefs, and at his core, he believed in the exploration of space. The space program wasn't just part of his life, it was his life. At age 35, Krantz was already a veteran flight director. He'd begun his tour in Mission Control in 1960 as Chris Kraft's assistant flight director during Mercury, then as a flight director himself in Gemini. Then he had moved on to Apollo. He'd been in the flight director's chair for more emergencies than he cared to think about, including Armstrong and Scott's brush with disaster in Gemini 8. Every nerve was tuned to the process of making decisions under pressure. During the landing, Krantz would sit in the third row of the mission operations control room, presiding over a team of flight controllers who would keep track of every system on board the descending lunar module and monitor its trajectory down to the moon. Each controller would in turn rely on his own team of backroom experts down the hall from the mission operations control room. Krantz's landing team formed up quickly. Each team was constructed on a mission-by-mission basis. When the flight directors received their mission phase assignment, the branch chiefs carefully matched the personalities and the strength of the controllers to those of the individual flight directors and their capabilities to handle the mission events. Bob Carlton, nicknamed the Silver Fox for his prematurely gray hair, had the responsibility for the lunar module navigation, control, and propulsion systems. His call sign was Control. During the last seconds of landing, his slow, deliberate Alabama drawl would be the only voice on the intercom calling out the seconds of fuel remaining. Don Putty, the tall, intense Oklahoman who never wasted a word, was the self-appointed leader of the Lunar Module Team, responsible for communications, power, and life support systems. His call sign was Tailmew. Steve Bales, filling the guidance position, called Guido, was one of the first of the computer whiz kids. Steve, in many ways, was more like the systems controllers. He had not yet developed the arrogance so characteristic of the typical trench inhabitant. He spoke rapidly, running his words together occasionally, then letting them stumble out. You could tell how he felt by his voice inflection. His large, round, black-rimmed glasses set him apart from most of the controllers. Fido was Jay Green, the pipe-smoking New Yorker, a rabble-rouser who did not like it when things got quiet. He liked to coach the flight director along a decision path. He was elite in the ranks of Fido's cocky and crisp with his calls. Bostick, 
Krantz's branch chief, with responsibility for the trench, knew that Krantz was the weakest flight director when it came to trajectory. So, he gave Krantz an experienced Fido who would teach him the new stuff he needed to know for the landing. To Green's left sat Retro, Chuck Dieterich. Like Green, he had a classic disdain for any controller who did not immediately surrender to the wisdom coming from the trench. Chuck would either bury you with more data than you needed or cut you at the knees. The combination of Chuck's Texas and Green's New York accents during the rapid-fire exchanges on the voice loops made for interesting listening during time-critical operations. Their voices were unmistakable. The final member of the trench was Grand Pauls, who would work with Bales. Grand was a tall, blonde, tight-lipped controller who had the habit of turning to look at you when you called. His nasal inflection reminded you of someone constantly suffering from an allergy. Like Steve, he was typical of the next generation in the Mission Control Center. Deke Slayton selected Charlie Duke from the astronaut class of 1966 as Krantz's Capcom. Duke was well experienced in the operation, having worked on Flight Director Glenn's team for the previous mission. For flight directors and Capcoms, the principal tools used during the mission were the Mission Control Center intercom and crew voice loops. Their common job was to listen, integrate, communicate, and act. During mission preparation, Duke provided the communications conduit. Aware of both crew and Mission Control Center concerns during meetings, he brokered and summarized the resultant actions with the crew. Of all the astronauts, Duke would have made a heck of a good flight director. Krantz had a great feeling about the easy confidence Duke showed during the planning sessions. He contributed to making Krantz's mission preparation successful, helping to bring the controllers to the highest pitch of readiness in the three months before the lunar landing mission. The simulation supervisor and his team came from the Flight Control Division's mission simulation branch. The SimSup was Krantz's other partner in team building. He worked with the flight directors and the branch chiefs in carefully monitoring controller performance during training and certifying them suitable for mission support. There was no way one flight director could do this job by himself. Krantz's lunar module team, the four controllers in the trench, and Charlie Duke were the core controllers for landing. The job of Krantz's team was to get the lunar module close enough to the surface to let the crew take over and attempt a landing. Close enough was subjective. Only the crew in the lunar module would know whether to land or abort in the last few hundred feet. It was the Krantz team's responsibility to get Armstrong and Aldrin to their decision point. 
With the assignments completed, Krantz called the first meeting of the Krantz team to finish working out the detailed landing strategy. Personal and team readiness would emerge from their study and the team work sessions on the trajectory, flight plan, and the mission rules. Then, simulation training would integrate the ground team with the astronauts and test their mission planning. The Krantz team had a total of 11 days of simulation to get ready for the landing. Only seven of those days were with the crew. Four were with mathematical models and a simulated astronaut. Krantz's team published their first complete set of rules for the Apollo 11 mission on May 16th, two months prior to launch. With no landing simulation experience, this first set of rules represented the sum total of their knowledge from their meetings. With the simulations starting in early June, the learning curve would be steep, resulting in planned rules updates weekly until launch. Simulation training was broken into two parts, nominal and contingency. The nominal training occurs early in the simulation period. It lasts only two to three days and is used to establish crew, controller, action timing, locate the go-no-go decision points, and exercise the procedures for the planned mission. The contingency training tests the crew and controller decision process in a mission environment while solving complex trajectory and systems problems. Training scripts are developed by the simulation supervisor's team and problems are programmed into the simulators without the crew's or the controller's knowledge. The training environment becomes as close to the real thing as possible, with the training team testing the flight team's strategy, knowledge, and coordination while probing into the psyche of the crew and the controllers. Nothing is sacred. No quarter is given and none ask. Training for a lunar mission was a daunting task. Training to cover every conceivable aspect of the first lunar landing bordered on the impossible. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 209 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 11 Mission Training Part 1. I want to give a big shout out to my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I am glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all of that and download every episode of the podcast on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute the highest level of donors, the Orion level. Currently, there are 14 Orion donors so far this year. Orion donors give $100 or more during the calendar year. Thank you for your continued support 
Orion donors. Had a couple afterthoughts about this week's episode. First, I want to give credit to Andrew Chaikin and Gene Krantz. These were the sources I used the most for this episode. And I kind of went into more detail than I planned for this episode, which should be no surprise as that is usually the way it works. <laughs> but it was just so interesting. I couldn't leave the stuff out. It's hard to cut stuff out. The people in the trenches seldom get much acknowledgement for their vital contribution to the moon landing, and I wanted to include some of them in this podcast. I also want to explain something a little further in case you're wondering about it. For Apollo 11, there were three flight directors, Glenn Lunny, Cliff Charlesworth, and Gene Krantz. Flight directors and their teams were chosen to cover certain phases of the mission. With Apollo 11, there were eight total phases. Cliff Charlesworth made the decision to assign the moon landing phase to Krantz and his team, which made Krantz very happy. Each team was assigned a color, and Krantz's color was white. Just in case you were wondering. Okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on the webpage spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. Now, first of all, I want to apologize that I did not recognize some of these donors sooner. One of my email servers I used decided to selectively send PayPal's notification of donation emails into spam. The strange thing is, it didn't send them all into spam, just some of them. But anyway, I figured it out yesterday, and uh, it should be fixed now. But, if you don't get an email from me within two or three days after making a donation, feel free to send me an email so I can give you credit and put your name on the donor's page. Mike at SpaceRocketHistory.com is the email address. Now for the donors. Bruce W. donated at the Apollo level and earned his rocket emoji. Oscar Z. from Maryland donated at the Apollo level. Joseph R. from the U.K. donated at the Vostok level. Matthew P. from the U.K. donated at the Mercury level. Daniel P. donated at the Mercury level. Per H. from Norway made another donation this year and is promoted to the Apollo level with rocket emoji. Joao from Portugal donated at the Mercury level. Jim Early donated at the Mercury level. And Robert Myers made another donation this year and is promoted to the Apollo level with his rocket and moon emojis. Thank you very much, donors. I do sincerely appreciate that. That brings our total to 111 Patreons. That's 39 short of the 150 we were shooting for by the end of the year. And our overall donors have now reached 170 with a goal of 300 by the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. 
Remember, you don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a $1 donation per month. Sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the home page and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page and begin your support of the Space Rocket History Podcast. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page on the website spacerockethistory.com based on their donation level. I was pleased to see the podcast received three new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past week. I would like to thank Puyajabahajabun. Now, that's probably not the correct pronunciation, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure the one who did that knows who I'm talking about. And I'd also like to thank Serge for taking the time and effort to write a very kind review and giving the podcast an overall five-star rating. I believe also there was one anonymous five-star rating, and I want to thank whoever did that. I certainly do appreciate it. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on social media. And thanks to those who have already done so, we will get to my retweeters for May on next week's podcast. This is the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. I do have an announcement in there you may be interested in. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will continue with the special training required for Apollo 11. In podcast news, per listener request, I have partnered with Cafe Press to create a store for the podcast for souvenir items like t-shirts and other type of shirts and water bottles and travel mugs and regular mugs and glasses and magnets and even a hitch cover. Order fulfillment is done entirely by Cafe Press. The podcast receives a small amount of money for each sale. Cafe Press says they have a 30-day money-back guarantee. I haven't tested that one yet. I've been working on this store idea for several months, and uh, without your knowledge, (laughs) I created a t-shirt with the uh, rocket comparison logo, the one that has all the rockets on it. And I ordered two t-shirts, one for me and one for Mrs. SRH. And... uh, we wore them for a while, and we washed them a couple times, and the logo started to fade. So I wasn't too happy about that. So I figured that the logo I used just did not have enough contrast or did not have enough darker color so it wouldn't fade. So I changed the design to a much darker logo, and I have ordered another t-shirt to see how this works. I was hoping to get the thin, cheap t-shirt that was only $13.99, but somehow that is out of stock. (laughs) So I ordered the $19 kids t-shirt for my number one grandson's birthday. He will certainly give it a good wear test. To get to the store, you can type cafepress.com slash space rocket history. Or go to my homepage, 
and click on the store tab near the top of the screen. Then click on any picture or link on that page and it will take you to the store. So if you want something, the store is available now. That's about all I have for this week, folks. I hope to have episode 210 up by next Thursday. So long for now.